Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, I wanted to first and foremost let you know about a, uh, a TV show that I'm going to, uh, to be on called Nude Greased Alligator Wrestling Philosophers. Oh, sorry. No, that's next week. This week, uh, this will be Monday night. I hope you can tune in. There's a uh, RT America launches a new show hosted by Adam Kokesh. Uh, so he says, RT America is set to launch a new program, Adam versus the Man. Actually, when I was first invited on, I was just going to show up in full biblical gear with a big-ass beard and uh, a, a, a coat made out of sheeps. But because I thought it was going to be a reenactment, Adam versus the Man of Genesis. But no, it's something quite different. So April the 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Next Generation Political Program will be hosted by activist, former Republican congressional candidate and United States Marine veteran Adam Kokesh, International Emmy Award nominated news channel RT America is an English language news channel based in Moscow and Washington, D.C. With bold original programming, RT is making inroads into what used to be mainstream media dominated television markets, said Margarita Simonian, RT editor in chief, quote, as an alternative media source often interacting with independent journalists and controversial opinion makers, RT has become a major player in the battle for information. In recent years, Adam Kokesh brings such a diverse background to any issue, said former campaign manager Tina Richards. She continued, when I want to hear political talking points, I can turn to the mainstream networks. But when I want to hear what is really happening and what the younger people of America are thinking, I'll be watching Adam versus the man. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm bringing the middle aged slice to that. So Adam versus the man will air daily daily the man is tireless at 7 p.m eastern standard time starting april 11th on russian russia today uh, so in the u.s rt is available on cable in the metro areas of washington dc new york chicago los angeles san francisco and san diego i really sound like i'm about to go into a Hugh lewis uh, song as well as in north carolina and south carolina for more information please go to rt.com slash usa slash where dash two dash watch to watch the RT live stream simulcast, go to rt.com forward slash on dash air forward slash RT dash America dash air. So I'm going to be on uh, tomorrow, uh, maybe a weekly gig. And uh, thank you so much to Adam for having me on his very premiere episode. I'm going to do my very best to not use uh, completely foul language and... Uh, even though it's Monday, it's going to be a pants Monday, which will be a definite departure from my regular schedule. But, hey, it's for the cause, so we'll get it done. So thanks, Adam. Please, please tune in. Uh, there'll be a link on the homepage of freedomainradio.com. Uh, you can also just do a quick search for Adam versus the man and get to the WordPress site. So I hope that you will avail yourselves of that. Uh, and Adam has some fairly hefty uh, arms, so I will be putting pillows uh, in my uh, tank top uh, just to compete. So. Uh, I hope that you will enjoy that, and uh, I will see you on Monday. That's it for my intro, because we have a number of listeners in the queue. So let's move on with the brains of the outfit and start our Sunday show. Stefan, I, uh, I've never called in before. I've never uh, been on the show before, but I've listened for a while. And um, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to call in and, uh, I guess, get your advice on... Uh, a couple things, if that's okay. Sure. Um, well, uh, I recently uh, defooed my mother. Um, 
And it was, I, I'm, I'm nervous that I, I did it wrong or I did it poorly. And she didn't get it or she doesn't understand. Um, so I guess I, I, I guess I wanted to kind of go through that with you and, and get your opinion. Uh, happy to help if I can. Uh, what was it that um, now? Let's let's just sort of be clear on terms first and foremost, just so we sort of understand. Uh, so you have decided mm-hmm. to take a break from your mom, is that right? Yes. Okay. And um, uh, so you, you know, my my sort of recommended approach is uh, is twofold, right? I mean, the first is to sit down and talk uh, as long and as deeply as possible and as openly as possible with. It's not family in particular; it's anybody in your life that you have significant issues with. To mm-hmm. sit and talk with uh, with people, and also to enlist the aid of a competent therapist during the uh, the process to make sure that uh, it, it goes as well as possible and also has the greatest chance of not happening as, as possible, which is, you know, which is not to say that sometimes it's not reasonable and justified. I, I certainly think that it is. But I think with any long-term relationship, you know, whether it's a spouse or a parent or anything like that, you, you want to have the best chance of success when it comes to negotiating what you want in a relationship. And that's why I strongly suggest that therapy approach. But anyway, so that's just sort of my my sort of brief uh, brief bit about it. And uh, what uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I I wish that that had been possible. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, things with my mother and I have just not uh, really been. It, we were sort of in this place where we were we had the official status of a relationship, but. Um, we weren't really speaking in any meaningful way and, and it, it, it all ended because of, uh, it, 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 it took a turn for that way, um, several months ago after we had this huge incident and, uh, she was, uh, rather violent towards me. And so I, I just, uh, I kind of, I'm sorry, you're vi- violent how? Um, well, <laughs> she, uh, uh, she she pushed me down a flight of stairs. Um, oh my goodness! Oh and, my god! Really? I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, she she claims that it was an accident, but it, it seemed very intentional on her part at the time, and uh, and so it the whole talking thing with her is just almost impossible, and so yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm look. I mean, and, and is there a history of violence in this relationship, or was that uh, the first time? Uh, when I was younger, when I was, you know, small, and uh, much less defenseless, much more defenseless. Um, uh, it was, uh, you know, something that she used to do to me a lot. Is she would smack me around, and she would, you know, tell me to do things, and. She's always been a very authoritarian person. Um, and, you know, as I got older, she, 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 she wasn't uh, physical with me anymore, but uh, still just as totalitarian. Um, and the incident occurred, uh, my, my, my brother, it was his birthday. Uh, I wanted to invite 
I, I wanted to have my girlfriend come to the dinner we were going to. And um, so I, I knew that my mom wouldn't like my girlfriend coming with the family um, for dinner. Um, so I, I told my brother um, that he should talk to mom and, and make sure it was okay with her. Um, so he did. And she got really upset and she started saying that, you know, this is our family dinner. This is our family thing. And, you know, she can't come and all this stuff. And so it was like, well, it's my birthday and I can invite whoever I want. Um, and, uh, uh, she was like, it's not your birthday. It's the family's birthday. And, and so my brother ran upstairs and she was like, well, it, it's canceled then it's canceled. And, and so my girlfriend and I were like, well, we should take him out to dinner, just three of us then. So I went upstairs to go get my brother and my mom was up there and, uh, I walked, started walking down the stairs with my brother and she was, she pushed me down the stairs and, uh, she, she was, uh, I mean, that's the story. And I haven't really spoken with her very much since then, except, uh, just this recently when, when I, uh, I had that conversation with her. Right. Well, I'm, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. That is, uh, that is a desperately sad story. And, uh, I, I sympathize and I'm, I'm shocked and, and obviously horrified at, uh, at what happened. Um, so I just really wanted to share that with you. Um, you obviously should not be, you know, I, I don't think it's obviously you don't want to be around somebody who can push you down a flight of stairs. I mean, that can, that can kill you. I mean, you just, you one wrong turn and you can, uh, you can break your neck yeah. or you could break a limb. I mean, this is not a, uh, that's not safe. So I think, uh, you know, based on what you're saying, I would say that this is not a safe person to be around. Um, you know, that having been said, right. I mean, the, 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 the process of exploring separation from family of origin is something that, you know, if you decide to take a break from, from a parent, I mean, that's just the beginning. I mean, that that's not the end of the process. I mean, it's the end of a process, but it's the beginning of another process. Again, this is all just my amateur opinion, but it's the beginning of another process of, of self-exploration of uh, working with a therapist to more quickly understand the history and, um, uh, and how to avoid any kind of, of this sort of repetition in the future, right? Uh, because that is a uh, yeah. that is a challenge. So uh, I just wanted to sort of mention that, um, you know, from what you've told me, I mean, it sounds to me like it's a sensible decision to not be around somebody yeah. who can, you know, who thinks that that's a reasonable way of dealing with a difficulty or dealing with a... a um... well, Sorry, go ahead. Th that was something that happened back in August. And... Um, it was the very beginning of August. And actually, I think it was, it had to have been like that week that, um, that I, I actually found your videos on YouTube and I started listening to your videos and then eventually the podcasts. And, and, um, and so I decided to, I mean, because of your work, I, I decided to move out of my house. I was living with my, my, my mother at the time and, I decided to move out of my house and move into an apartment with my girlfriend. So, it, I thank you, <laughs> thank you. 
Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to be thanked for, for helping. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that what I have done has helped you with the situation, but it's a terrible thing to be thanked for. But I, I appreciate what you're saying. I really do. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, what happened uh, it was a couple, a couple weeks ago. I was, uh, I was at work, and I, I hadn't seen my mom. Um, I saw her briefly at Christmas, but I didn't speak with her. Um, I hadn't seen my mom uh, since then, basically, or speaks, spoke to her really, and um, and I uh, I was at work, and then I went on break, um, and I was walking on the street to go get some uh, lunch, and uh, she there she is, she's walking down the street towards me, um, and she uh, she's like, oh hey. You know, like, it's so good to see you, like, really uh, glib and nice. And she was like, do you want to go get some get some lunch? And I don't, I don't know why I said yes, but I, I said yes. Um, and I went to lunch with her, and she started talking to me like, you know, like nothing bad had ever happened between us. Like, we're... Sure. You know, and I, I, I can't, I cannot take that kind of, I, I just can't take that thickness. And, and so I just kind of sat there and, and then she started talking to me about how, um, I didn't call my sister for her birthday, um, mm. on, on her birthday. Um, and how it's very important that I always call my sister for her birthday and, you know, that I talk to her about her interests and, and then I, you know, I'm interested in her life and, and, you know, I, I, I've never really been that close with my sister. Um, and so I, I started telling her that, you know, I, I, I feel awkward when I have to talk to someone about something I, I don't really want to talk to them about. And very quickly it became a conversation about family in general and, and that stuff. And so it became about us and, and then she started, you know, talking about how I was such a bad, disobedient person and how I never listened to authority and how I never listened to her. And I always, you know, have to bring up these philosophical reasons and this, and I don't want to have this argument and we're not having an argument. We're having a, you know, I'm going to tell you how to be and, and all this stuff. And, and so I just, I was like, you know, mom, I, I don't think this relationship is making either of us happy right now. And I think it would be best if we, we didn't talk for at least a while and, and, you know, see how that works. And, and then she really flipped out and she, she said, she was like, um, well, why, why would you want to do this? And I was like, well, you know, I really want to be happy, you know? And, and I think that this relationship isn't making me happy right now. And then she said, she said, well, what about my happiness? What about your sister's happiness? All you care about is yourself. All you care about is yourself. It's always about you. It's always that objectivism, selfishness, nonsense. And and I didn't really know what to say. And so I just, I left the restaurant. I didn't order any food. <laughs> I left the restaurant and I, wa- I walked back to work and she followed me into my work. Um, and uh, I I went into the back room and I just kind of hid in there for like, 20 minutes and I was late getting back to on the clock, but she, 
I guess she was gone when I left when I got back. So, and and I haven't talked to her since. Right. And so I, 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 I feel like she didn't get the message. She, she's going to keep calling me and keep trying to be around me. And I, I can't be around her anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh... I mean, it's a sad, it's a sad story. I mean, obviously, and I, and my heart goes out to you and, uh, and in a weird kind of way, and I'm not sort of asking for sympathy for your mom from you, but in a weird kind of way, my heart also goes out to your mom because to have, you know, just sort of based on what you're telling me, my thoughts are that to have such a limited repertoire where the only, like the, the only response is to escalate and to become more aggressive and insulting. Uh, even though a relationship is hanging by a thread, uh, to, to have no other tools, in a sense, other than escalation and aggression, uh, it's it, it sort of, it makes it inevitable, you know, what your decision is. And and that's really tragic. And again, I'm not saying have sympathy for your mom, because that's, you know, I mean, if you do, fine. I'm not saying don't, right? But that's, uh, it is, it's tragic no, I, all around. I definitely see what you're saying. Right? It's tragic all around. It really yeah. is. It really is. Now, listen. Are you able to get to get get yourself to any any kind of therapy? Um, I maybe. I I I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't have very much money. Um, I had I had a really good job interview the other day, and uh, I think I think I'm going to get a new job. Um, but uh, I'm unemployed right now. And uh, my girlfriend works full time, and uh, I, I does it cost very much money? I think well, I don't know. I mean, it depends where you are. You can, of course, negotiate with some people. Like I believe you can negotiate a sliding scale, uh, so that's one possibility uh, if your income is low. Uh, look, I mean, if you if you get the job, I I would just I mean I can't, I can't speak highly enough of of working with a good therapist. And uh, it can save years uh, of mistakes and uh, being stalled and all of that. So I think it's, I, I just think, I can't speak highly of it enough as an investment, uh, an investment that pays off about as quickly as any investment you're ever going to have is going to pay off. So that's just my brief amateur hour pitch for uh, for therapy. So I would uh, uh, strongly, strongly urge you. I mean, look, if, if your mom has that kind of limit, limited repertoire, then that's going to have an effect on your relationships and your relatedness to others, in my opinion. So, uh, so I would, uh, I would absolutely look into it uh, as, as soon as possible. Uh, so that's, you know, that's it, just my standard. It's definitely something. It's definitely something that's been on my list and, and it, it's something that I want to do. Um, I, I, I don't really know how to find the right because I, I worry that, you know, I'll go to a therapist that's, uh, you know, a, a terrible therapist. And, sure. and and I won't know the difference, you know, right off the bat. And, right. you know, I spend, you know, six months and I realize that, and however much money, and then I realize that they're, you know, a wacko or something. And they don't know what they're talking about, about, you know, psychology. And so I guess I... I Get nervous about that when I think about yes, it. I understand that, and I wish there was uh, some sort of magic phrase, you know, some sort of secret handshake I could give you that would help you find <laughs> a good therapist. Uh, I I don't know one. Uh, I think that um, 
I think some compatibility in values is pretty important. Um, you know, I don't think you want to go to a therapist who's uh, got, you know, a tattoo of Jesus on his forehead if you're not religious. Uh, and so I think some compatibility of values is important. Uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, credentials can be, can be, can be important. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, just in terms of trusting your instincts, of course, the issue is, is that if we were all really good at trusting your instincts, we'd have less of a need for therapy. So it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a cash 22, you know, like, so, uh, but you know, somebody who's been around for a while, somebody who's had experience, uh, hopefully in the areas that you're going to work in. Uh, and you know, if you feel enthusiasm during the session, uh, the initial session, if they, uh, you know, if you look forward to going back, I, I think those are all good signs and they're not perfect, but there is no perfect template for that kind of thing. I don't think anyway. So, um, you know, I, I think just trust your own motivations. I'd, if somebody wasn't good for you, I think you'd pretty much feel it in the first session. I think that you'd, you know, not feel like going back, not feel enthusiastic about tackling your issues. Uh, and uh, I think if you do feel enthusiasm and a desire to continue and you look forward to the next session, I think that's usually a really good sign. So I'm, I'm very big on, you know, you listening with your whole brain and your whole body and working with your own instinctual responses to somebody else. I think that's really helpful. So. Yeah. Um, I, I wish, I mean, I wish I could give you anything more useful to, sorry, I wish I could give you something more useful. I mean, uh, I think that you obviously have to keep yourself physically safe. Um, if there's more yeah. that you want to say to your mom, I think that you should sit down and try and say it to her. If there's nothing more, you know, this is just around honesty with yourself. If there's more you want to say to her, then or if you find yourself going through sort of imaginary conversations with her for half the day in your head, then I would say sit down, have those conversations with her. But if you don't have anything to say at the moment, then I think you don't have anything to say. That's just where you are. And I think that's something to be respected in yourself. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the other thing that, okay. I want to bring now, up sorry, sorry, sorry to be sorry to be sorry to be annoying. Uh, I, I'm just I'm, uh, for the last couple of weeks we haven't gotten to all the callers, and some people have sat there for like an oh. hour and a half with an ear, their sort of phone pressed to their ear, and then haven't gotten on. So if you have another question, please feel free to shoot me an email or something like that. But I really want to make sure that we get uh, to to the callers who are waiting. Uh, so if you if you don't mind, please, please feel free to shoot me an, an email, and I'll do my best to respond. But um, I'd like to move on to another caller, if that's all right with you. Not because I don't care, but sure just thing. because I have to sort of balance it out. Sure thing. Thank all right, you. Thanks, man. All right. And if you are on the line, you can hit star six to unmute yourself and uh, grab the reins of the conversation. And let's ride, my friend. Hello. Hello. I'm unmuted, this is. You are unmuted. You are audible. Okay, so I'm in? Yes. Okay, so um, same as the guy before me. I'm a first-time caller, a long-time listener, and uh, a foreigner, obviously. <laughs> and I feel very humbled by his story. I have nothing uh, of of uh, that sort of uh, experience. And... Um, uh, I don't know if there is a form in which I have to say some sort of uh, uh, experience or I can just ask any sort of question. Uh, it's an open forum, whatever's on your mind. 
Okay. Okay. So I tried uh, sending uh, an email with a few questions, but I guess uh, yeah, there is uh, so many of us asking. So um, if I sound like I'm reading, it's because I'm reading. <laughs> All right. So uh, my question is, uh, what is your take on uh, what they call uh, funny videos? Uh, the ones in uh, which they show uh, extreme falls of people from bikes and buildings and stuff like that, where, you know, like at the end we are kind of supposed to laugh, uh, even though you see people getting really, really seriously hurt. Right. And uh, I'm referring to the to the shows like uh, Crazy Mexican Jackass, because I heard you once saying something like uh, you wouldn't watch... Uh, um, a horror movie before going to to your uh, daughter's birthday party or something like that. So um, I'm I'm always wondering what kind of effect to to our brains uh, do these these kind of shows make? I mean, by 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 your uh, opinion. That's that's a very good question uh, and a very interesting question. I have a soft spot for some funny videos. And by that, I mean sort of uh, the videos, not so much where people are, you know, there's always the one where some kid's trying to hit a pinata and hits Uncle Louie in the nuts or something. And I don't find those particularly enjoyable at all. But there are some, you know, some videos that I think are, are, quite, uh, are quite funny and quite enjoyable. And I think some of these sort of America's Funniest Home videos, I mean, every couple of months that'll sort of be on if I'm uh, having some something to eat or I'll flip on the TV and I'll watch it for a few minutes. And they, they, they can be, I think, quite warm and enjoyable and, uh, and, and funny. Uh, the, the ones you're talking about, I, I haven't seen Jackass or any of those films. I do believe the guy got institutionalized who was in it for a while, though. But, but I know the way, where, where there's sort of extreme injuries and significant risk and, uh, and that sort of stuff. I can't watch those. I can't. Um, you know what they 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 talk about these things in your brain called mirror neurons and mirror neurons if you see somebody getting hurt they recreate that flinching within your own body and so if i see someone you know skateboarding off a uh, uh off a roof and then landing on some railing or whatever i mean it it's it's not like I feel the physical pain, but I, I have the same flinching. My, my whole body recoils and, and sort of curls in on itself in a strange little fetal position. And I, I just, ugh, I mean, I just think of the pain and the shins and the, oh, the, the throbbing and the, oh, it's horrible. Yes. Yeah, so I, I can't watch those. It. Yeah, I, I feel, I mean, I don't, I don't feel what the guy's feeling. I mean, I'm not saying it's a direct body transfer, but I'm like, oh. That's just horrible, and I just that, that to me yeah, is yeah, the opposite but, of entertainment. I'd pay good money to not see that. That's the opposite of entertainment for me. Yeah, but I'm sure you know that there are young people, especially men, who are you know kind of joining together to to watch that and to to kind of toughen up. This is their idea. That's what what's going to happen. But what's happening? They're becoming numb to somebody else getting hurt. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if any studies have been done on this. My first impression, and it's only an impression, is that I don't think they become numb. I don't think they start off not numb and then become numb. I think they must be numb to begin with. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to watch it, if that makes any sense. Mm. Okay. Okay. You know, like if if you've ever... Sorry, the reason that I say that is if you've ever eaten a food that somebody else likes that you find horrible, you know, like Vegemite or whatever it is that, that Australia is like, 
you find it horrible. I, I mean, I guess if you kept eating it every day for like six months, you might end up liking it. But who would, right? Whereas if you, you open up yeah. your sunburnt jaw and you take a bite of Vegemite and you, you really like it, then you'll just keep eating it. And I think the same thing is true of that kind of, quote, entertainment, which is that if it's horrifying to you to begin with, I don't think you're going to keep watching it to the point where it's no longer horrifying to you. Uh, I think you like I think it has to not be horrifying to you to begin with. And uh, I think that you have to take some pleasure. So I, I think it's purely sadistic pleasure in watching other people being hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of harsh. It's like a harsh braying donkey like okay. laughter when people see that kind of hurt. And I, I've always found it a particularly grating and ugly sound. And so I would mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say that they're they're desensitized probably through mm -hmm. childhood trauma or experiences. And it's not that they become desensitized through watching this any more than we grow to love a food that we hate through repetitive eating. We generally just don't eat it anymore. But anyway, so let's move on to your other question, if that's a reasonable, uh, if not true, uh, at least opinionated yeah. response. Uh, sorry? Uh, sorry, let's move on to your next question. Next question. So um, I love the, the parenting series. I'm, I'm a complete fan. I'm not a parent <laughs> or anything like that. And, and I hear a lot of people uh, calling in, and I don't know if they're aware that in this parenting series, what they, series, what they can do, and this is what I do when I, hear, when I listen to it, I am reflecting everything on my own childhood, you know, listening, all of that, digging through my own childhood, and I have to say, mine was quite okay. <laughs> and and uh, I'm, I'm so I'm and, so happy to hear that. Uh, many, I, I, many I just wanted to mention. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to hear that. I, I really am. Uh, I think it's it's just wonderful. And uh, somebody I think just joined the board. I think it was a woman who joined the board recently who was talking about how close she was to her father. And I think that stuff's all great. So, but please go on. <laughs> no, because I feel I feel almost like uh, outcast. You know, <laughs> I feel like can I say that? You know, can I say mine was okay? I don't know. You should. You um, should. I mean, look. It's, uh, let, let me put it to you this way: uh, uh, people who've had bad childhoods. Uh, I think should be very happy that there are people who've had good childhood, right? Because it means that there's people mm. to date who aren't traumatized. It means that uh, uh, there are people raising kids in their neighborhood or in the world who are going to be happy and healthy. And so I think, uh, you know, sh share it for heaven's sakes. Don't be ashamed if you're, you're good fortune. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful thing. Well, I started talking to some people and, and I think my, my contribution can be, by by describing how does it feel you know to be loved to be supported and and this is uh, some some sort of a, a goal for these people for for you know where to get to. Yes, yes, I agree. So uh, my question about uh, these is uh, my sister has kids you know some friends have kids and 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 uh, I was wondering do do you know if there are books uh, stories that that would uh, go along with this type of parenting. You know, rather than the, the usual um, helpless princess, ugly stepmother, and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, uh, I, there are books that. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand your question. I, I wish I did. Uh, and and if there are listeners out there, uh, I haven't had much of a chance to look at uh, various stories. There there are some stories that. Uh, that my daughter likes, but I'm always a bit concerned that, you know, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk where the giant is going to grind up 
the English, little Englishman's bones for his bread and, and all this kind of big bad wolf where she's going to get eaten and uh, all of that. So I'm a little concerned about some of that. And uh, uh, it's interesting, actually, just by the by, looking at some of the older children's cartoons that are available uh, on YouTube or other places, uh, sort of the, the Mickey Mouse or Donald Ducks from the 1940s or 50s. They're pretty violent. Uh, and in in a yeah. way that you just wouldn't you wouldn't see that anymore. And I remember watching a lot of those when I was a kid. I mean, I'm not that old or anything, but all that kind of stuff. And um, it was uh, uh, it, I used to watch the Tom and Jerry's, and and they were pretty violent. And even the the Road Runner and Wiley e. Coyote were pretty violent. So uh, you don't see that stuff nearly as much anymore. Uh, and uh, so I, I think the newest stuff is 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 better. And, uh, I mean, my daughter really likes a video of Goofy Baby on, on YouTube or whatever, and, and it's, it's a very gentle and, you know, positive uh, story. So uh, I think look for, the, look for the newest stuff for sure. Uh, that seems to be better. As far as written stories go, I, I'm just not enough of an expert to, to really know. But if people do have books that they have found to be really sort of positive and peaceful, uh, please uh, send them to me and I'll put them on the message board and hopefully you can find them there. Great. And a very, very short question at the end, if I may. Please. I'm looking all over the place, the, the, the guy you talked to about um, Americans as a PTSD nation, and I cannot find, I don't remember the name, I cannot find the, the podcast or anything, the interview with him. Oh, John so, Omaha. If, was if you know what I'm Sorry? Yeah, his name, was, his name was John Omaha, like the state. I'm just going to double check that. Okay. At least that's what pops into my head. Let me just double check that. That that was a great uh, conversation. I, I yeah, PTSD I'm coming nation. Actually from... Yes, yes, PTSD nation. John Omaha. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, coming John from Omaha. Serbia actually, and I live in Paris. Like it's totally mix up and, and you know growing up in in the war and and you know now you have uh, so many people in the world uh, going through the same stuff but you can uh, you can kind of grow up okay uh you know if the parents have this goal rather than sinking in in everything that is happening around them and uh i mean uh, non-ptsd nations are rare <laughs> I think. right right you also may want to check out, uh, somebody just put this in the chat window. Uh, I, I haven't listened to it, but there's a woman named Laurette Lynn. You can find her at unpluggedmom.com. And I think she does, uh, She's uh, a number of listeners seem to be quite positive about her, or very positive. So I just wanted to uh, to mention that. Oh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen that. Okay, cool. Well, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you very uh, much. Uh, Great questions, uh, please, if you have more. And I'm sorry I didn't get to back in your email. I do try to, but uh, what happens is I'll sort of yeah, flag longer ones with lots of questions, and then I don't sort of, if I get shorter ones, usually it's a little easier. So I'm sorry I didn't get back to you, but thank you so much for calling in. Okay, thank you. Bye. All right, take care. All right. Step on up. Stay on the scene like a chatting machine. I hear a breath. Uh, that's just me. Sorry. Uh, oh. That was. Um, we we have a no no no. So sorry. So sorry. I didn't get too excited. Uh, if you want to take a, a chat room question real quick while we're waiting for someone to call in. Yeah. Um, somebody basically just sort of asked. I guess they're asking for your opinion on FEMA. Uh, just putting it in terms of FEMA, friend or foe. 
Oh, FEMA, like the the U.S. Department, FEMA. Yeah, federal emergency, whatever, something. At those guys. Uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm no expert on FEMA, and I I try not to have much expertise in stuff that uh, is morally highly objectionable to me. Uh, so, um, Harry Brown used to talk about, and he, I think he died even before this stuff. Oh no, I think FEMA's been around for a while, but he was basically saying, and he used to have this thing on his uh, on his radio show where he would say, "What's the point?" You know, so Florida has a hurricane, and then Tennessee has to send a hundred million dollars to Florida. And then Tennessee has a flood, and Florida has to send $100 million to Tennessee. Like, what's, what's the point of moving all of this money around for people who have various, uh, various emergencies? Well, and the other thing that's true is that, economically speaking, uh, there's, there's an old economic argument, and I can't remember the technical name for it, but it's something like this. And it basically is, yeah, everything evens out. And if so, if you have a, a town that has really good air quality and you have a town that has really bad air quality, then the property prices for, those, uh, for houses in those towns will simply reflect that. So you'll be, in a sense, paid to breathe bad air by having cheaper housing. And if you want to breathe good air, then you have to pay for that through more expensive housing. The reality is that house prices go down for areas where there are natural disasters, right? So I don't think an earthquake is going to strike Toronto anytime particularly soon. I think that there was one which I napped through about 25 years ago that was a tiny little shake. And so the housing prices in Toronto reflect that, whereas uh, housing prices in other places in the world where there are fault lines or where there's significant uh, hurricane problems or there's uh, tornadoes or, or whatever, right? The housing prices simply reflect that. So if you have a natural disaster that strikes some area that's prone to natural disasters, and then you take money from people who aren't in that neighborhood and give it to those who are in that neighborhood, then that's economically unsound in a very fundamental way, because you are, um, uh, the, you're, subsidizing, you're subsidizing heavily, and you are distorting the incentives to live in places where there are natural disasters. So if people who are in natural disaster areas know that they're going to get money if things go bad, then they're going to be more prone to live in disaster areas, which means that more people are going to be subject to those disasters and it's going to cost more. Whereas if people don't think they're either not going to get a bailout or they're going to pay proportionately higher insurance rates for wherever it is that they're living, then that will make a lot more sense economically and that will, there will be a disincentive for people to go and live there, which is good if it's a place that's really prone to natural disasters. So I think that uh, FEMA fundamentally is not a friend of anyone uh, in that it's funded through the violence of taxation. Uh, it, um, uh, it tends to stall people really badly. And this is, a, this is a, a, people don't talk about this as much as I think they should when it comes to government programs. So uh, to take a sort of brief example uh, of something like this, there's a program put in by Obama a couple of years ago designed to help homeowners not get evicted. So it was designed to help them renegotiate their mortgage with their bank to get reduced payments. And what happened, though, was natural. It's that lots of people applied for it, and it turned out to be too expensive, and there wasn't enough people there to process the paperwork or whatever it was. And so people who would otherwise have moved out of their home because they just couldn't afford it ended up staying in their home and going into debt 
sometimes as long as a year or a year and a half before finding out that they had been rejected from this program or they weren't covered or, or something or just giving up and moving out because they didn't know how much longer it was going to take. And so this is very often the unintended consequences of these kinds of programs that they will ostensibly be there to help people with their finances. But what they actually do is they end up making people's finances worse because they keep people in a situation where they're spending more money with the expectation of getting some sort of government uh, bailout and that bailout either doesn't come or takes too long or it's less than they thought. And so they end up worse. And, and something else, which is, uh, is somewhat similar, is, is uh, something like unemployment insurance, which is uh, it, it, keeps, like, it keeps people in towns hoping that things will turn around when things don't turn around and they should have moved you know, the moment that things started to die. And people in Detroit or what do they call Cleveland, the mistake by the lake, and people will stay there because it's like, okay, well, I've got unemployment insurance, so I'll be able to eke out another year and hopefully things will turn around. And often, of course, they don't turn around. And so what happens is people end up a year in the hole. They're now a year unemployed. They haven't moved. They have less money to move. They have fewer skills. They're viewed with uh, some skepticism, let's say, by employers for being unemployed so long, like what's the matter? And so because of these sort of, quote, support programs, people end up in a worse situation than they'd, if they'd have said, well, crap, you know, I've really got to move to some place where there's some jobs because I have no money. Uh, it ends up putting things, uh, putting people in a deeper hole a lot of the time. So I would put FEMA in that, in that kind of category. So I hope that uh, it's not too, 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 too long-winded an answer to that kind of question. So somebody has asked, um, thoughts on sorrow and grief in respect to logic and the rational. It strikes me as irrational, but inescapable. Sorrow and grief. It's a good, uh, it's a good question. Sorrow and grief. Hmm. See if I, I mean, I may or may not have something useful to say about, uh, about sorrow and grief. I don't think I don't think that any deep emotions are irrational. And uh, in a in a recent podcast, uh, I talked about some of the findings about how science uh, has discovered that there's a, a quite a bit of significant rationality in the unconscious. And I don't think that uh, grief and and sorrow are are irrational. Look, we all have to live to some degree, like bad things aren't going to happen. Everybody knows if you sort of stop them and sit them down, look, look them eye to eye, you know, they know, you know, whoever you love is going to die and the health that you need is going to fail you. Uh, age overtakes us all and pushes us down that creaky, bouncy, rheumatic, rubble-strewn cliff edge to the deep chasm of death. And, you know, bad things can happen to us at any time. Car accidents, uh, uh, trip and fall downstairs or be pushed. Uh, bad things can happen to us at any time. And if that dominates your thinking, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you are dominated by negative thoughts and you don't enjoy your life, right? This is true when you have kids, right? You they could fall, but they will fall. Um, they're playing near a swimming pool. No matter how careful you are, I mean, 
no matter how close you are, they may fall in. And I mean, obviously, I don't think that's particularly bad if you're right there, but there's some anxiety around that. Uh, and you know, I mean, anybody who is a parent or who's, you know, you just know this is the situation. The kids always want to do stuff that is risky to you, and and you may be a little bit time lagged in terms of what they're able to do because you're so used to the last phase. And, and so bad things are going to happen to us in our life, and there's no escape from it. So let's say that you solve the problem of watching someone you love die from some illness by not falling in love. Well, that just means that you've missed the benefit of falling in love. Or let's say that, uh, well, I think let's, let's just stay with that one because I think that's something we can all relate to. So, and there are people, of course, who try to avoid the inevitable losses of love. Uh, and the movie Shadowlands, I think, is a good, good uh, story about this. Uh, by keeping their heart closed and their soul cold. And that way you do get to avoid the loss that comes with love. And so we have to live, I think, with some knowledge of the disasters that can befall us, but without losing the pleasure of the moment in that knowledge. And that's that's a balancing act, and I think that the balancing act should be slightly tilted towards the optimism of the moment, because the bad shit's going to happen no matter what, but you can enjoy the optimism and pleasure of the moment, of, of where you are in life. So sorrow and grief should always, I think, to some degree, come as a little bit of a surprise. Ideally, I mean, if they're completely anticipated and perceived to be inevitable and blah, blah, blah. Then I think we are losing too much of the luster, the glow, the sparkle, the shine of the everyday moment. Because then a, a bad thing happens. You're like, oh, I knew it. Well, that's coming from a place of anticipation of negativity. So we live our lives in a state of blissful, giddy, avoidant idiocy <laughs> to some degree. And I think that there's. I can't think of a way around that. And so when disaster comes, as it does repeatedly in life, I think we should feel some shock. I think we should feel some surprise. I think we should feel some... Well, I don't need another synonym. I think I've made myself pretty clear. And so I don't think it's irrational. I think that sorrow and grief are always associated with surprise to some degree. Uh, even when we know something's inevitable, that's not the same as going through it. So I think it is rational, and I think it is healthy to feel those emotions, to be surprised at the negative stuff that is inevitably going to happen in life. So I think it's their emotions to be treasured. You know, all, all they are is the grief, for instance, is, is simply the shadow of value. And... You can't have a value without being sad about its loss. I mean, that, that would be irrational. Everything that we treasure, everything that we want, everything that we love, everything that we desire, even before having it, will inevitably cause us some sorrow or disappointment or grief if we lose it or don't attain it. I mean, anybody who wants a job is going to feel sad when they don't get it. <laughs> we can even feel sad about things we don't really want. I remember when I was in theater school, uh, my best friend in theater school, a fine actor, 
uh, he was slowly coming out of the closet during the time that we were uh, in theater school together. And um, he never expressed any physical attractive, attractiveness towards me. Never. Shocking. It's not that I wanted it. I'm not gay. But you can even feel a pang about not getting something that you don't want <laughs> because of the hopeless vanity of the human condition, or at least me in my late teens and early 20s. No, early 20s. So anyway, I just sort of wanted to mention that I think that you can't live life, you can't live a happy life without having values, without having and wanting things. And having and wanting things means that we're going to be sad when they're no longer there, or we lose them, or we don't achieve them. And so there is no cure for desire and pain, except the one that goes down about six feet and is filled with worms. So I just wanted to, to put it that way, and hopefully that makes sense. Oh, boy. I just, I just read your response. Do you mind if I read that out? He wrote, thanks for the answer, Steph. I recently lost my wife to cancer, and I find myself trying to rationalize my emotions without repressing them. Certain things trigger deep sorrow, and I wonder about the feelings dominating my present life. Oh, my God, my friend, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, I mean, I don't know if you'd want to watch the movie Shadowlands, but it is a good movie, and uh, it is about a man who loses his wife to cancer. And uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure you love your wife as much as I love and adore my wife, and uh, I, uh, I can't imagine. I, I just, I can't imagine, and I just really, really want to express my absolute sympathy, deep, deep and absolute sympathy for just a, a soul-shattering loss. There are two things that, that come to my mind about this kind of loss. Um, one is... I don't know if somebody knows. I don't know which book it's in, but Nathaniel Brandon writes about uh, one one of his wives. Her name began with a D, Dino or something like that. Uh, she she drowned in the swimming pool of his house, and uh, uh, he was just beside himself with grief. And and what he said in, in the book when he was writing about this experience was that. You know, he would just, he would lie on the grounds and he would howl and he would spin himself in circles and he would clutch at his belly and he would grind his eyes with the heels of his hands and that, that sorrow, the grief, it just worked its way through him like, a, like epilepsy. And then there were times when he would be distracted and that would, so uh, his approach was simply to not try and work the emotions. And I mean, because emotions are so powerful, we do have a tendency to want to try and manage them, right? And, uh, but they are the free market of the self and need their free play, in my opinion. So that's one example. Now, another example of grief that I didn't think was quite as integrated or successful was the physicist, Richard Feynman, who wrote a book called What Do You Care What Other People Think? He lost his wife. I'm thinking it was to tuberculosis, but I don't think he was that old. Anyway, he lost his wife. Uh, she died. And he didn't uh, feel much of anything until a year or two later, he saw a dress in a shop as he was walking past in a shop window. And he just suddenly realized that his wife who had died would have loved that dress. And then it hit him. 
and it was uh, uh, very hard uh, for him for quite some time. And I don't know. I don't know the alchemy by which all of that occurs. You know, the emotions are not open to these kinds of uh, these kinds of controls. So um, these are just two things that that popped into my mind about uh, grief and and sorrow and loss. And uh, I uh, I'm so sorry. I just my my heart goes out to you. Um, if there's anything I can do, uh, please let me know. But um, you just you have uh, all the sympathy in the world that I can I can summon and imagine. So I just wanted to I just wanted to mention that because it's a um, it's a truly truly tragic thing that uh, that you've gone through. Oh yeah, an 18 month trip from the diagnosis. I remember collapsing then, and even more so now. Oh, absolutely. Oh, big hug, big hug, my friend. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, if there was uh, if there was evil in biology, its name would be cancer. This show means a lot, he says, and I find strength in reasonable people. Yeah. You know, it is, um, it, it, is the, it is those kinds of situations that remind us not to worry too, too much in life. You know, there's an old cliche. It says, well, if you've got your health, you've got everything. And in some ways, that's true. Um, facing that kind of struggle and battle and lust in your life puts a lot of other things that we worry about in very, very clear perspective. And sometimes I think we all forget that. I'm not saying you have obviously, but I think we sometimes all forget that. And, um, it's just so important to treasure what we have while we have it, because as you, as, as you've experienced, I mean, you, you just don't know something can happen. Something shows up on a scan and bam, you're just on that downward slope to the grave. And, um, I uh, I just wanted to, to just give huge, huge sympathies and respect for what it is that you've had you've had to go through. And you know, okay, so I, I, let me just see. Sorry, if we have uh, if we have any other questions or comments, otherwise I'll uh, excuse me. Uh, I'll keep going with some thoughts. Sure, go ahead. Um, are you there? I, I am. Um, I I had a a topic, but I I don't know if you want to continue about about your with your thoughts first. Let me because uh, I uh, I'm still feeling quite emotional about this guy's story. So let me just speak for a minute or two more, if that's all right. Sure. <clears throat> you know, one of the um, one of the characteristics that I have been ambivalent about in my own personality, but which I'm becoming more and more favorable about <sighs> uh, sorry, somebody else has just written about in the chat room about how they've lost their father to cancer so uh sorry, let me just uh, uh talk a little bit about about this you know life. Life is terrifically short. It's short enough that we really need to do right by each other. We really need to do well with each other. It's long enough that we have to plan and be careful, but it's short enough. You know, we don't have forever to undo our mistakes. 
And I remember when I was a kid, um, uh, my brother and I had this, you know, this sort of rule and uh, it sort of went like whoever, whoever took the toys out had to take the toys back, right? So if you, if you took out the model airplane, then you had to, you had to put it back. And, and unless the other person ended up playing with it, in which case the other person would have to put it back. And I can't remember where this rule came from, whether it came from our mom or whether it was just something we came up with. And I'm sure there were times when I didn't hold up my end of the bargain, but I have these memories of my brother taking out a toy that I really liked and playing with it. And then if it started to rain, just going back in. And I would, I'd sort of stand there in the rain looking down at, at this toy and saying, well, wait, the rule is that, you know, he's supposed to bring it back in or whatever. And I'd feel this, this anxiety or this stress because I thought, okay, well, if I go in because of principle, then the toy is going to get broken or someone's going to take it and then I won't have the toy anymore. And if I take, but if I take the toy in, then I'm just sort of reinforcing not following the rules or whatever. And that was a, that was a real paradox for me. I remember reading a book. Can't remember for the life of me what it was called. I was in my mid-teens and it was about a woman who got anorexia and she kind of collapsed at one point. I mentioned this before on the show, but it's these kinds of paradoxes that I think are very tough in life. She she forgot her book in her locker and uh, she wasn't allowed to be late to the class she was going to. And if she went to the class without the book, she'd get in trouble. And if she went back to get the book, she'd be late and she'd get into trouble. And so she just basically sat down against the wall and stared off into space because she was in an impossible situation. And that kind of panic, that kind of anxiety, I think is really important. Just thinking about this, uh, if, if something's wrong in a relationship that I have, then I, I really feel that sometimes an overwhelming desire is to sort of sit down and, and, and fix it. You know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, just fix it, whatever whatever pride I have to swallow, whatever apologies I have to make, I mean, not for the sake of making apologies, but if they're reasonable, um, that I, I need to fix it. Old age comes and overtakes us all, and we need people in our lives. And this has bothered me off and on over the years because it, it, it's felt to me like I care more than other people. That, that other people can take it or leave it as far as their relationship with me goes, but it bothers me very much if there's a problem in the relationship and I really need to sit down and talk about it. And I've been ambivalent about it because I think it's given me amazing strength in the few relationships, the few close relationships that I have, but I feel that it puts me at a disadvantage in uh, in other relationships which are less close. So... Um, the reason that I'm sort of bringing this up as far as grief goes is I think that panic, and panic is the right word, the anxiety that I have when something is wrong in a relationship is better than the regret that may come afterwards if the relationship ends or fades away or becomes casual or becomes an acquaintanceship. If there's something wrong, I really feel like I need to do something about it. And I've disliked that a lot. But as I get older, I realize that it is a very good thing. And uh, I just you know, want to remind people about, 
you know, if you have people that you care about, if you have people that you want to be closer to, do it. Don't do what the listener, what the listener's dream was telling him a couple of weeks ago when he had a microwave. Don't do little waves, you know, open your heart like a floodgate. Talk to people, be vulnerable, be open, be honest, take the hits if they come, but find a way to get close to people, find a way to admire people, find a way to act in ways that good people can admire. And don't try not to let anything stop you in your pursuit of open-hearted people and in opening your heart yourself. And if you've done wrong by people, then do your very best to make it right. Because we don't live forever and we need each other more and more as time goes by. And these kinds of losses that can happen can come out of the blue, can come from anywhere. You know, people who are estranged but who want to be together sometimes can fall into this, it'll happen someday, and, you know, then someone gets hit by a bus and it's over and it's done. And I think those kinds of regrets are unsurvivable in some ways. So I just strongly urge people to to stay close, to be open, to be honest, to be vulnerable. To shed the relationships where you can't be close, no matter how you try, and to embrace and deepen and strengthen the relationship where closeness and trust and love and intimacy and honesty flourish. I am incredibly fortunate uh, in my marriage and with the friends that I have. I mean, I've worked hard, but I am... It's as much luck as anything else, and I'm just telling you that there is no treasure greater than those relationships. No money, no success, no fame, no looks, no sex <laughs> is better. Or more necessary is the basic food of sustenance for our souls than those relationships. So... I just wanted to sort of get that off uh, off my chest. Uh, I'm sorry, my friend. Uh, please, please go ahead. That's pretty intense. <laughs> um, it's a bit abstract. Well, not abstract actually. It's probably not abstract at all. But um, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on agreeing to disagree, because. It's something that really bothers me. <laughs> right. Right. Why? Give me an example of where where it happens that it bothers you. And if you could speak up a little, you're just a little quiet. Um, it, um, it, it bothers me when... when People use it to just sort of, I guess for, for, for me, it, it bothers me because the thoughts that come up are, um, they're, they're not open to reason or changing their mind about anything. They're not, um, there's no criteria by which someone can change their mind. So you might as well just agree to disagree. Um, um, it's, it's very conflict avoidant, I guess, 
and it it also strikes me as sort of relativity, and it always just it's always followed by well they have their truth, and I have my truth, and all those all those things that say that that really irritate me to the point where I feel like I'm being clawed by some kind of skin rash. <laughs> right. Like walking skin rash. And it's just, it's so irritating. And so, and, and the thoughts that, that come up in my head are, that are critical of myself at the time are that that I'm this Nazi guy that, that wants everybody to agree with me in order to have a relationship. And I, I don't know how to explain to people that I that you have to agree with me. It's not that you have to agree with me in order to have any kind of a relationship with me. And you have right. to agree with everything I say because that's just insane. That's not what I'm saying. And I don't know how to communicate what I what it is that I want, that, that I want this objective standard by which we both agree to and seek truth right. together and all that stuff. It just... I can't seem to get that across, and and I I wonder if it's true. Is it is it is it good to agree to disagree and and maintain a relationship? Is, is it am I just being a, a Nazi? I guess am I, am I <laughs> well Nazi, but, but yeah. So I think I sort of understand what you're saying. So people, you know, tolerance is a value that's highly praised in uh, in society, and uh, you know, if you've seen or read, I've been sort of meaning to do a short series on media literacy. Uh, if you've seen or read any of the reports of the recent Democratic and Republican showdown over raising the debt ceiling and the government shutdown and all that, um, uh, it's very much around, well, they won't compromise. They're bickering. They're being dogmatic. They're being ideological. They're refusing to bend. They are being stubborn. They are whatever, right? And these words are, they're like um, sandpaper designed to wear down the rough edges. And so, yeah, there, there are two ways of um, standing your ground, right? One is you have good reason and uh, good evidence, uh, though you're always open to better reason and better evidence. But we all have to take, stick our flag in the ground somewhere, and uh, hopefully it's at least close to where reason and evidence uh, is. And that's, that's having integrity. And I think that you, you should stand your ground. On those issues, and I, just about everyone would agree with me, right? So, I mean, uh, rape is wrong. Well, you know, this is not something. You know, we you don't get the rapist to just agree to disagree with his victim, right? I mean, everybody gets that that's just plain wrong, and uh, and all that sort of stuff, right? So, but those aren't things that usually come up in in conversations with people. So, when you get the phrase "agree to disagree," to me. How I experience that, and I think there's some reason to experience it this way, but it's not, you know, proven empirically. It's just my experience is that uh, somebody is portraying me as, as irrationally dogmatic. Uh, they they despair that any of their arguments will be able to change my mind because I am just emotionally stuck on a some you know some particular position, and so it's like okay, well, I'm not going to give up what I believe even though I'm probably more right. You're certainly not going to give up what you believe, even though you're probably in the wrong. So let's just throw our hands up in the air and agree to disagree means that the conversation is over. Right. That's, it's not a, um, 
Uh, it's not an opening in a relationship or a conversation. It's, it's a closing, right? It's, we are not going to revisit this topic because we are not going to be able to come to any sort of agreement. We're just going to have to agree, quote, agree to disagree, which means that now we have a, um, a spot around which we cannot speak, right? We have a blank spot in our relationship that we can't, we can't go to. So it very much is around no longer having a conversation uh, or an interaction about it. There usually is, at least for me, a kind of superiority. I don't think I've ever used the phrase agree to disagree <laughs> because, you know, philosophy is my game. So that's not really an option. I mean, scientists don't agree to disagree about uh, certain things, right? They, they have to kind of get to the conclusion. So, uh, so, and, and mathematicians don't agree to disagree. I don't remember any of my math teachers ever saying, well, I don't think that two plus two make five, but let's just agree to disagree on this. I'm like, no, no, there's an answer, right? right? So, uh, so for me, uh, it is a, usually it's a slightly superior and condescending way of saying, uh, I give up on your ability to process reason and evidence. Uh, so I'm going to draw a line around this topic, like a chalk, chalk outline around a dead guy. And this is someplace we're just not going to go anymore. And, and to me, there's like also, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I experienced from them. But even just thinking about the concept itself, agreeing to disagree, it's like to say that is to dismiss all criteria by which someone can change your mind. Like there, to to give up hope on on like to not even understand what disagree and agree even mean. It, that's what it, that's what it says to me. It's like, it's, it's to not even know what those things even mean. Well, yeah, because look, I mean, if, if you and I are debating about which way is North and which way is South and I have a compass, am I going to say, well, let's just agree to disagree. No. I mean, what's, what's embedded in that very statement is that everything is subjective. And that you can, in fact, agree to disagree because whatever you're talking about is purely subjective. I like blue, you like orange. Well, let's just agree to disagree. But in a sense, there is no disagreement. I mean, if I like blue and you like orange, we're not disagreeing with each other. I'm not saying blue is objectively the best. I'm just saying I like blue. Right. Right. So, yeah, so, so I think that there is a lot of philosophy you know, I think it was, was it last weekend, last Saturday show, and I'm sorry it's taking me a while to post it. It was kind of messed up, and I've cleaned it up pretty significantly, but it took a while. Um, I was talking about how it is the philosophy, philosophy is so embedded in our everyday interactions. And when someone says, let's agree to disagree, there's a huge amount of philosophy that is embedded in that statement. That there's no objective third party called reason, reality, evidence, truth, logic, whatever. There's nothing that we can appeal to that is going to settle this dispute. Uh, it's just you and I, and there's a paradox because it's not a personal preference, like I like ice cream and you like chocolate, but it's something that we're both claiming to be true, but which is purely subjective. And th those things can't be true. Th those two statements are mutually exclusive. Something cannot be both potentially true and purely subjective. Uh, the, the world is round is a true statement. It is not a subjective preference or opinion. Um, I like I like ice cream is a subjective thing, and it's true maybe that I like ice cream, but it's not 
a statement that is true about objective external reality that's easily verifiable by somebody else. And so it, it, is, a, it is creating a paradox which says we're going to disagree about something that is purely subjective. But you can't disagree about something that is purely subjective. I like romantic comedies. You like action films. How can we disagree about that? I mean, they're personal preferences. There is no disagreement. There's no conflict. It's like disagreeing that you dreamed about an elephant. Yeah, I dreamt about an elephant, and you dreamt about uh, Elle McPherson riding an elephant in slow motion. Okay, I want your dream. That's objectively better. But there is no conflict there. I mean, if I say I dreamt about an elephant, and you say I dreamt about Elle McPherson riding an elephant, um, what would it make any sense for me to say, okay, well, we'll just agree to disagree? No, because there's nothing to disagree about. It's a purely subjective experience. So somebody is saying, when they use the word disagree, they're saying that it's objective. But when they say let's agree to disagree, they're saying let's both maintain our opposing positions as true, although they refer to an external and objective reality. But those two things are impossible. You cannot have those two things in the same place. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, yeah, it's sort of a cluster bomb straight to the frontal lobes, right? It's very compressed, like you said. Yeah, nobody's going to say, let's agree to disagree that rocks fall down. Right. Now, uh, sorry, the, the one place where I think this does show up quite a bit is arguments, effect, arguments from effect in the political realm. So uh, is, is, uh, is unemployment insurance good or bad for people? Well, for some people, uh, it's pretty good. And for some people, it's pretty bad. And so you can kind of agree to disagree about certain things in politics just by looking at, and this is true of economics as well, but more so in politics. Economics is usually win-win if it's free market, whereas politics is always win-lose, right? Right. And so uh, is unemployment insurance good? Well, for the guy who's receiving it, yeah, it's good. For, I mean, just materially in the moment. For people who are paying for it, uh, no, uh, not so good, right? Uh, tariffs, are they good or bad? Well, for the people who make more money because of tariffs, they're good, economically speaking. For the people who can't afford whatever the tariff good is or who can't afford something else because they're paying more for that tariff good, it's not good. So... There are those kinds of things. When, you, when you're looking at win-lose things in politics, you can, quote, agree to disagree in the argument from effect, but that's only because you're avoiding the argument from morality, right? That's only because you're not saying, well, not is unemployment good or bad, or is Social Security sustainable or not, or what is the national debt? Does it ever need to be paid off? I mean, those are all arguments from effect, which people can agree to disagree, and that's what most of the media is doing, right? Is, uh, is just doing all of that sort of nonsense. But... What is much more important is the argument for morality, which is, should we use the initiation of force to achieve social ends? Well, that's a little less easy to agree to disagree on because it's got the initiation of force in it, right? And the initiation of force automatically precludes disagreeing, right? You can't disagree with taxes because you're going to go to jail. Right. Right. So when you get down to the argument for morality, the agree to disagree thing it no longer makes any sense. So you can have a Democrat and a Republican talking about entitlement programs, and the Democrat will probably say they're good, and the Republican will probably say they're bad, and they can agree to disagree. 
because they're just looking at two sides of the coin, right? So I look at the side of the coin that has George Washington on it, and I say, hey, that has George Washington. And you look at whatever the hell's on the other side, and you say, this has L. McPherson riding an elephant slowly, because, you know, that's your fixation. And I can understand that. I mean, elephants are really sexy. But you look at the other side, and you say, well, on this side, there's a leaf. Right? On this side, there's George Washington. Well, on this side, there's a leaf. So coins have George Washington. No, coins have leaves. Well, let's just agree to disagree. I mean, of course, it's nonsense, but it makes some kind of sense when you're looking at it that way. But when you're looking at UPB, when you're looking at the argument for morality, then you can no longer say agree to disagree anymore. Because you've got the initiation of force, which precludes disagreement. So you think it's pretty understand? I mean, do you, do you experience it the same way where you just kind of like... Like, I feel like I'm attacked by a giant squid of irritation when I... No, yeah, look, I experience this irritation, but I think I look at it much more... I think I look at it more clearly by just assuming that it's projection on the part of the other person. Right? Because somebody's saying to me, well, you're not really open to reason, so let's just agree to disagree. But, I I mean, in my experience, 100% of the time that that's being claimed, it's the person who's saying it who's not open to reason. So I just accept it as a kind of projection and, and move on. Because what it really indicates is a lack of self-knowledge that I think is really important. I mean, people who project elementally lack self-knowledge, and you really can't get into debates with people who lack self-knowledge because they're just too prone to unconscious emotional manipulation, which is what that statement, I think, really really, uh, expresses. Right. Oh, that answers a lot. Yeah, I'd, I'd been wanting to call in about about the whole topic of relativism and how it just <laughs> causes this this horrible reaction in me. But um, just especially after that incident with someone here in Philly, but um, it's just I, I had thought about a lot about it. We talked about it a lot here, and and it you know we kind of concluded that relativism in itself is an absolute ideology, it's like, it's kind of very absolutist in the sense that everything is subjective and that's just as absolute as an irrational absolute. Yeah, I mean, it does. And I, I was of this opinion before I became a father and I'm even more of this opinion now, but I view relativism as uh, simply uh, bomb in the brain stuff. It's just, um, it's scar tissue. From, uh, from childhood trauma. Uh, relativism uh, it, it occurs, I mean, my daughter is not at all a relativist. Um, she's an all or nothing, full tilt boogie, uh, sails to the wind, uh, absolutist. And, uh, and I think that's exactly where she should be. I think that's, I think that's very healthy. And so I, I think that it comes from uh, people who are facing dogmatic people in power, whether it's parents or priests or teachers or whatever, they're facing dogmatic people in power. And in order to retain, like if you're against, if you're coming up against a dogmatist who has authority over you, an irrational absolutist, then if you surrender to them, you kind of lose yourself completely. Whereas if you kind of blur them down to relativism and you can at least then keep your own perspectives by having them be relativistic without incurring the inevitable attacks that will occur, if you bring objective, rational, philosophical standards to the other person's irrational absolutism. So I I think it's a defensive strategy from more sophisticated minds when faced with 
irrational absolutes in an authoritarian setting. I, I think that's a defensive strategy that is designed to retain some sense of personhood. I mean, at great cost, but it's at the least cost possible in the situation. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, if you're in that kind of conversation, you know, and, and you feel comfortable with it, or at least relatively comfortable, you can just say to the person, uh, hey, I'm curious, what was your experience of authority like when you were a kid? Right. I don't think I've ever felt that comfortable before in that conversation. Right. Right. I, I've never felt comfortable at all in those conversations because I, I feel as if I'm being accused of being and that's like a like what they're actually doing. Um, right. It's the uh, it's the appeal to insecurity, right? So if I insinuate that you're immature or irrational or whatever then if I can get you to self-attack, then I win, right? I mean, that's, then that's a great temptation, and we face a lot of that in life, uh, and it's just important to try and keep that in perspective. Like, uh, well, well, why do I have to agree with everything you say and like everything you like in order to have a relationship with you? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. No, so basically that's just, you know, you are a, um, a mind-bending narcissist, right? I mean, that's, that's the other, right? Okay. I mean, I've, I've heard that criticism of, of, of what I put out, too, which is to say, Okay, so Steph says, if you don't agree with all of his values, he's just not going to have a relationship with you. In other words, you have to completely, 100% reflect what he believes, uh, or he's just going to dismiss you or whatever. And I, I mean, I, I think it's a complete parody of, of where I'm coming from. I think that there are some values that people need to share in order to have a civilized relationship. They have to uh, refrain from abuse. I think that's pretty clear, physical or sexual or emotional. I think that ha that has to be kind of be off the table for people to have, or at least a commitment to having it off the table needs to be there in order for people to have a civilized relationship. And I think most people would, uh, would agree with that. I think you have to give up the use of force to have a civilized relationship or the threat of the use of force to have a civilized relationship. People don't like how far that extends if you count religious indoctrination, particularly hell, as verbal abuse. And if you count statism as the threat of physical abuse, well, yeah, it stretches out pretty far, but that's not exactly my fault. I mean, I didn't invent the state or religion. So, uh, yeah, you will hear that too, right? So, oh, so I'm not allowed to disagree with you on anything. Or a trick that people use, so if somebody becomes a fan of free domain radio or anything. I mean, this was the trick that was used on me when I was a fan of objectivism. It's like, oh, so you just agree with everything Ayn Rand says. And, and the implications of that, of course, are very clear. That um, you don't think for yourself, that you, you, you're not processing anything objectively, you're not looking at the evidence, you're just swallowing like gospel, whatever this uh, smoky Russian goddess of reason puts out. And that is a huge insult, of course, to, to one's own personal integrity and intellectual curiosity. And um, yeah, I mean, there was stuff that I disagreed with Ayn Rand from the beginning. I thought her position on homosexuals was pretty primitive, uh, not wildly primitive given where she came from in life, but I thought that was kind of primitive. Um, even back in the day, I didn't really agree with her dismissal of anarchism. I mean, because, uh, you know, a one-line dismissal of complex philosophy is usually pretty uh, uh, amateurish, and, uh, and also because it's pretty hard to avoid noticing that her portrayal of an ideal society is gulp gulch uh, near the end of Atlas Shrugged, and in it, there is no government. And so it's a little hard for, to think of her as a statist when her ideal society has no government in it. Anyway, uh, that's uh, just something to point out. But 
but yeah, so people would say, oh, so you disagree with everything. It's like, and to me, I mean, you, people can say whatever they want, but the correct answer is, well, I agree with things that are true. And if, if things are spoken that have good arguments and evidence, then I will accept them. And I don't know what your standard is, but that's my standard, right? Right. And I, I don't even know how to respond to somebody that, that says that because then I, I just feel insulted. I like, I, I, at that point, you know, I don't even know if it's even, there's even a point to even talking to that person anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, because they're trying to get you into the situation where you have to say about all the stuff you disagree with. And, um, you know, that's just kind of, you know, because the, the, the standard of truth is not whether people agree with me or not. I mean, that's not a standard of truth. I don't have any standard of truth called I said so or, or I have stated. I mean, what a ridiculous thing that would be. It would be to say that I can make things true by saying them. I mean, that's insane, right? I mean, hopefully I have good arguments and good evidence and hopefully when I don't, I will correct myself. But, um, yeah, it's to say that uh, if... Uh, um, if some mathematician has put out a proof, right? So it's it's sort of like going to a, a mathematician and saying, oh, you just accept everything that is proven by Euclidean geometry. It's like, right. well, yeah, because it's proven, right? I mean, yeah, of course, uh, it's proven. And uh, so oh, you you just oh you just accept because uh, some guy said that two plus two makes four. You just accept it. It's like, no, I accept it because two and two make four. Right? That, the, the fact that somebody said it is irrelevant. It's the argument that counts, not who said it. So bringing in someone said it is, is a red herring and a trick right? designed to, to get you to distance yourself from whatever you, you treasure or value. And so you can just say, well, you know, if, if things are true, I tend to accept them. Um, you know, if... if if I break my arm and then the doctor shows me an x-ray of a broken arm and he says, your arm is broken, I'm going to listen to what, I'm going to accept what the doctor says because it hurts, I can see the break and he's a doctor. Uh, so, oh, so you just accept everything that your doctor says about your arm. It's like, but there's evidence and reason and my, it throbs like a son of a bitch, so I'm in, right? So, uh, yeah, it's trying to, it's trying to, it's doing a trick which substitutes the fact that someone said something for whether it's true or not. So, and I just wanted to mention that. Right. Well, I, I just kind of, I wanted to hear all your thoughts about that. And I, <laughs> it's, I'm feeling much more clear on, on why, I, why I have irritation, I think. And, and, and yeah, I mean, you can just ask someone, well, what's your standard of truth or anything like that. So, um, right. Those are all things that, you know, those are things can be useful, but definitely stay away from. Because, you know, do you agree with Steph because he says that, like, you, you agree with everything Steph says? It's like, I don't agree with anything Steph says. I, I mean, I, hopefully nobody agrees with a damn thing that I say. Because the important thing is not that I'm saying it. Everybody, like, lots of people say lots of stuff, right? Right. I mean, I hopefully will say things that can be verified, either logically or empirically or both, but that's about it. Right, and that's kind of what I... What I trying to say to explain what my position is and it's just like I don't want you to agree with me I want you to agree with reality with the evidence with the truth with yeah and all the person sorry all the person is doing is they're confessing that there was someone in their past who made them agree because they said so right, right. jump when I say jump you say how high right so that, that all, they're, all they're saying is, is that someone in the past gave me a standard called truth is what I say 
And that's the only way that I can judge it emotionally. And so I'm just going to try and use that on you to see if I can get away from questions or arguments that are making me anxious. Nice. Well, thank you. You are welcome. That's a great question. Uh, a great, great question. And uh, I hope that it's. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. And nice to hear from yeah, you again. Oh yeah, nice to hear from you. All right. Let's move on. All right. We have time for uh, you know more questions. Hello. 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 Hi. Hi. How's it going? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I just wanted to ask a question. It's something I've been uh, uh, dealing with and thinking about for a long time. And uh, I got a lot of my influences from my father, a very learned person, uh, passed away last year. Anyways, it's, it's regarding, I find it touching on many different subjects with uh, the monetary system that's happened and the things that are happening in the world. Uh, I grew up in my younger years in the 70s. I was a child, teenagers in the early 80s. And now you see this, this world changing in such a way. But my father, uh, prior to his death last year, he said this thing that he looked at people. He said, "Human beings, people. The only thing that we do is we emote." We sorry, we do what? The, we emote. We emote. Okay. We emote. That it is the one thing that drives everything. That uh, that like an idea, a thought, has no power without an emotion to back it. It is empty. Mm. Uh, once we back it with an emotion, we get the drive to discover through discovery of new things uh, right from uh, from uh, like from birth almost through our, throughout our learnative years and how informative years. It's all driven by emotion, and uh, your even your decision making process is how we decide what is right and wrong is is based on an emotional response uh, as kind of. Um, wanted to pass that by you is what your 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 thoughts. Huh. Your father does sound like a very wise and learned man, and I'm sorry about your loss uh, last year. I'm I'm not I'm not sorry, but thank you, and I understand. But it, it is part of life, and it kind of goes with. Um, it's a, it's a the loss is mine, right? And it's not. He's not feeling any more pain in now. My loss is my own. It's it's my emotional response to not having. Him around, right? No, but and, he sounds like a wise and enjoyable man. Yeah. Uh, he was, and he did have his the side of his self that was um, he would say reprehensible, and at least he got beyond it throughout his 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 uh, life. Now, the reason why I kind of wanted to get your opinion on that is because it kind of goes with this other thought that I think through some of the things I've. I've listen to on some of your podcasts. And I, I must admit that I haven't listened to a lot. There's so many of them. You're so prolific, um, uh, which is great. And um, was that because of this value, this this um, this thing that we, we emote, and it drives everything that we do. And that is the source of true value. That is where all value exists. And through that value, we have used through different 
machinations, ways of representing that value, and that gets to where we have this monetary system that in the world that exists today, where it is so unbalanced, and nobody realizes that the value that these Wall Street, uh, City of London, Bay Street, wherever your street is, where the financial world is, is where true value is traded and openly stolen. And, but we don't have a connection to the, that's where the value comes back because it really comes back to you and I and everybody else in the world where, where a value comes from. I'm, I became an electrician because this is where life led me, led me this way. I made decisions where opportunities came. Well, I worked for 24 years doing nothing, earning less than $24,000 a year. And to, have a, to, to realize the necessity to improve my value to others was what led me to take this opportunity and but I'm kind of digressing now but the whole thing was that what I was saying was that that uh, our emotions are drives us I, I, I can't seem to I'm trying to get see if I can find somebody who to you know where, where would they understand whether whether I'm being subjective or objective whether mm. there is something more I, I, I think I understand too that like reason is like an operator like a, like a like an equal sign it's like a comparative I think I'm, I'm. I'm not sure whether whether you get me on that. No, so I think like I do. A, there's like a, there's some kind of equation there, right? I don't know. Like right. there's this, you know, with you know, you got attractiveness and you got repulsion. They're kind of like a, a standard, like positive and negative, and that uh, you can look at like love and hate as being representative of either one of those two things. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, let me, let me, yeah, I think, I think I know what you're saying. I'm going to just, uh, I, I think I see where you're coming from. Let me see if I can unravel it a little bit and tell me if it, if it's what you're, you're talking about. Yes, okay. I, I absolutely agree that desire is at the root of just about everything. And, you know, again, not to be annoying parent guy, but that's, you notice that when you have kids, that uh, desire is driving everything, everything. I mean, I don't know if somebody changed my diapers and gave me milk every three hours. I'm not sure I'd be heavily motivated to do much, but my daughter is quite the opposite. She wants to do everything by herself. She wants to learn new things. She's in the process of learning her alphabet. She's got about half the alphabet down. She's in the process of learning how to sing all of her songs, and, and she'll keep singing them over and over until she gets them pitch perfect. And she's, she's in the process of learning. to. She wants to do a somersault all by herself. She wants to jump from the couch all by herself. She wants to learn. To, and this is strong desire. And this was from day two that uh, she was born. She always wanted to be carried and always wanted to be walked around. She never wanted us to sit down. And then when she got older, uh, you know, the first thing that all children learn how to do is point. And my daughter, and I think this is pretty common, she would make a sound. She'd go, mm-hmm, when she wanted something. She'd point when she wanted something. And so desire was dri driving her exploration of the world. It's driving her desire to master her body and her abilities and her environment and she's really only interested in things that she can manipulate she doesn't care about things that are far away she cares about things that she things that she can do things that she can manipulate and I, I don't think that changes much in life now that having been said there are to me two fundamental categories of desire and it's important to differentiate between the two of them the first is desire for a subjective goal Right. So somebody wants to be an actor and somebody wants to be an accountant. Right. Two brothers. Well, no one, I think, is going to say that either one of those goals is good or bad. 
or right or wrong. It's, you know, it's, it's so I have a desire to be an accountant. And you know, I have a desire to be an actor. Those are desires, and they're not objective. They're subjective preferences. Now, of course, if somebody says, I want to be an actor, so I'm going to enroll in accounting school, or somebody says, I want to be an accountant, so I'm going to enroll in improv school, uh, you know, that would not be a rational way of achieving those, those ends. But so those are those desires, right? The desires for things which give you satisfaction and pleasure in your life that are subjective, which is not to say unimportant. Um, so those are one set of desires. The other uh, sets of desires are desires for things that are objective. And that's very different. That's a very, very different category. So if I say I have a desire for the truth, that is very different from saying I have a desire to be an actor. If I have a desire for the truth, I am no longer stating a purely subjective preference. I am stating a sort of subjective preference for something that is objective. So if I'm an engineer and I say I want this bridge to stay up, I'm, I'm you know, it's not quite the same as saying I want to be an engineer. Because now I have an objective standard. If I am a scientist and say, I want this theory, I, I want my hypothesis and testing and theorizing to turn out to be valid, well, I'm saying something quite different than I like ice cream. And so when your desires are pointed at something that is objective and measurable and tangible and reality-based, that's a very, very different thing than a subjective desire, you know, I like this band or I like that style of music or I like this kind of food. Uh, and I think the differentiating between those two is, is very important. And people mix those two up all the time. And uh, it's really, really important to keep these two piles very separate in our heads. Okay, so... Is that, is, is that anywhere close to what you were saying? I just sort of wanted to, 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 uh, to make, see if I got anywhere close. Well, it's like, like uh, in terms of, um, like, uh, like if, you, if I were to say to you, like, I think the only thing that people, human beings do is, is emote. Is that a subjective thing or is Well, no, no, because look, I mean, that's like saying that the only things that people have are emotion. Well, that's not true. Uh, that's not true. And, and we know that that's not true because there are other animals, uh, other species that have emotion. Uh, I, well, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But of course, I mean, like you can see the same thing in animals. We can't understand them. They don't well, tell me what you mean by uh, the word emotion. Language. Well, that, like that. But it is like the crux, I think. Like it's your everyday life is governed by your emotions to do something. Like as you're you're told to, as a as a teenager to you know your father tells you you better achieve in school, otherwise you won't have any you won't achieve the things you, your goals. Uh, you know they, they they're trying to direct you. So and you you don't have my desires were my emotional desires were to music. So I concentrated on playing guitar and and hanging out with friends who play guitar. I didn't spend so much time worrying about what school was all about. Um, so I went with, I, it was like an emotional decision. I'm just like, your desires are governed by your emotions. So if we, it seems that all these problems in the world and the problems that you have, even you're responding with people, it's always... Right. Sorry, but, interrupt, but, but in, emotions, emotion, right? yeah, but emotions are not irreducible primaries, right? Uh, like, so sensations, I think, are pretty irreducible, right? So if I stick a fork in your arm, God help me, you're going to feel some pain right. and that's not really, you know, up right. to you. But emotions, yeah, but emotions are not irreducible primaries because the relationship between emotion and thought, emotion and perspective uh, is, uh, is considerable, 
right? So if you change somebody's perspective over time, their emotions will usually change to, to go along with that. And so uh, emotions are not just these irreducible things like the bones in our legs. You know, there's not a lot we can do with them other than, I guess, eat some calcium and take care of them by exercising. But those are sort of irreducible things. And like how tall we're going to be, it's kind of, irredu- it's kind of um, uh, irreducible. It just is what it is. But emotions and thoughts and, and feelings uh, are much more complex than that. And, and, you know, if you change people's way of thinking, you can change the way that their emotions respond to those, those thoughts. Well, you know, music does that, right? I mean, you can, you can play um, an opera or you can play a Tchaikovsky and it can affect you in the emotional, it'll give you a, or like a march, a, like a military march is, is designed to, to sure. take your emotions, to drive you in a thought pattern towards, uh, that, that is prescribed by whether you're in the military or whether you're standing in the line in 19, 19- 40s Nazi Germany and having to, to chant in order to raise your hand and say Heil Hitler or whatever, right? I mean, your the emotional the music is pushing your emotions, which is pushing your reactions. Whether if you don't uh, have control of your emotions, then you're abdicating it to something right. or somebody else. So your yes. reason, your re- you're abdicating reason from that. But point, sorry, right? but sorry, to interrupt. But those are those are back to sense. Like music is a sensation. Uh, it's not a thought. Right. And so I, I think you're right. Sensations can drive emotion. I mean, if you stub your toe, you're frustrated and upset. You're emotional. You're stubbing your toe is your physical sensation of pain, which results in an emotional state. Um, but right. there are thoughts which can sub- substantially alter emotional responses. Uh, and uh, and, and right. for instance, right, and, and you gave me an example of this right at the beginning of our conversation when I said, I'm sorry about your dad's loss, and you said, I'm not. Well, the typical response is, yes, uh, I am sorry for my, my loss with my dad dying last year and so on, but you've obviously gone through a thought process which has changed your emotional response from the typical or from the norm, right? So that would be an example. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've... I've lost somebody I care about, and I'm looking for people with two key guys died in my life in many ways, and I ran from him. I pushed him away at one time, too, but not, not to say that. It's just that um, my emotional responses to his or, or anybody's um, uh, uh, inflections upon me, whether they be direct or with physical, emotional, or uh, they're all my emotional responses, and therefore... I cannot ab- abdicate them to that person or to this to the thing. It is my decision to act in a negative way or a positive way in, for my benefits. An emotional response to um, to say uh, somebody's um, you know like when you're as a child, and your you know, children don't understand this. You don't. You don't you know, I didn't understand it when I was this way. My emotions. I keep control of my emotions, and depending on how I react. And guide my emotions. I can either make things worse or better. Right. So I think that I think we're on the same wavelength or on the same page then, as far as saying that uh, there are certain people and all they do is emote. But that's just the unexamined life, right? Um, that's just like saying, well, people who judge food by only how it tastes on their tongue tend no, they don't eat very well uh, because you know food that's not great for you often tastes better than food that that is good for you. And so yeah, if you don't know anything about nutrition and you just go on taste. Yeah, unfortunately, if you just go without any knowledge of nutrition or, or any knowledge of, of healthful eating, then you're just going to eat. So, yeah, there are some people who just eat badly because they just go by taste, and there are other people who eat better because they go with, with greater knowledge. So I wouldn't say that all human beings do with emote, but there are certainly some people who react emotionally and without thinking 
this is what uh, Plato said, is the un- unexamined life is not worth living because it's, it's really hard to say if, if you're alive in that kind of situation. So, Listen, I, I, we're sort of running out of time here. I just want to... to uh, no problem. I know uh, it's around 4 o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah. So listen, great, great comments and questions. I think these are all very, uh, very important and interesting things to to ask about. And I, you know, as always, I mean, I'm just so impressed about um, uh, about the questions of uh, uh, and comments that people uh, uh, people are coming into this show with. I mean, it's it's just fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. So uh, yeah, we're we're just coming up at the end of the hour, and uh, really wanted to thank everyone for your support, for your encouragement, for your positive responses, for all of these kinds of great things that are going on in this conversation. Uh, it is a truly thrilling honor to be part of this conversation. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, who's, uh, who's writing and, and supporting the show in a variety of ways. It makes absolutely the world a difference, I think, to the world to have this kind of conversation in it. I think it is a better place to have this conversation in it. And to everyone who's participating, please take a bow. And I will talk to you soon.